0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back to talk snakes. It's snake talk. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's right. We're continuing this month's movie episode, announced uh, episodes, uh, because yeah. we just, you you got to pick the movie this time. You picked Conan the Barbarian.
0: Hadn't seen it in a while. Was wondering how it held up, and you know, it kind of did, it kind of didn't, but it's it's definitely worth talking about. But uh, one of the key centerpieces in this film is the the
1: cult of Set, Thulsa Doom's uh, religion. Uh, I mean, he seems into the
0: branding yeah. even in the the earlier portions of the film when he's just a, a warrior. Yeah, um, that's a little confusing because the whole thing is that, like, James Earl Jones, he was like, Once I was a young man and I was just a warlord running around raiding mm-hmm. villages. You know, the sorry I killed your parents. Not that sorry. Yeah, I don't think uh, he ever said he was sorry. No, he didn't say he was sorry. No, in fact, he says to Conan, he, he's like, Got Arnold Schwarzenegger on the floor. He's like, When I destroyed your village, I made you. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, but But then later in the film, He's, he's like, oh, I don't do that anymore. Now I'm just a regular cult leader. But in both cases, he's carrying the symbol of his cult, even though he's not a cult leader yet in, in the earlier part. And the symbol of his cult, which is referred to in the movie as the cult of Set or the temple of Set. Uh, and in the last episode, we discussed the real ancient Egyptian – well, maybe not real, but the real mythology of the ancient Egyptian god Set or Seth and how uh, he is very different than the set represented in the film. But but the cult of Set in the film has the symbol of the two-headed snake, uh, with with the two heads facing off against each other.
1: Right. I mean, maybe
0: part of it is that
1: just even though his approach to life changed a little bit, he just always had great branding. He always or, loved snakes. Yeah. yeah. Or certainly, he just maybe just took up the the uh, the emblem at some point. And there was a pre-existing cult of Set. I mean, certainly that would if you're creating a cult leader. I mean, some cult leaders create their faith wholesale. Uh, from from new parts, but uh, for most the most don't. part, yeah. For the most part, they're depending on something that came
0: before and just inserting themselves into it. That's exactly right. I mean, in fact, I, I can scarcely think of a cult that doesn't draw on some existing mythology. I mean. Uh, Uh, You think about the Heaven's Gate cult. I mean that was in a large part based on like UFO mythology and existing Christianity. Mm -hmm. Even if you look at like the Raelians or Rylians, one of the the UFO religions, the, the guy who founded it has this whole book going through like the books of the Bible and all this talking about how it's actually all about alien encounters and alien technology. It's basically an ancient aliens religion. Yeah. So the emblem for the the temple of Set in this film he has this this really
1: cool logo actually that it's like uh, it, there are two different versions of it you kind of see uh, one is like on the, the like the staffs and the, the armor that they carry and then there's this like simple uh, simplified logo uh, but it's a snake with two heads a head on each end. Like, a, like the head of the, the snake is a snake head and the tail of the snake is a snake head. Yes, And they're, they're rising against each other and in the background there is a sun.
0: And in fact, it's a plot point in the film because Conan and his friends go around looking for Thulsa Doom, played by James Earl Jones, by asking about this symbol. It's like, have you seen this symbol anywhere? That's how they, they, they initially connect with him. So it should come as surprise
1: as a surprise to nobody that the idea of a snake with a head on each end predates this film. Uh-huh. Uh, that you know that this this is something that uh, that we can go back uh, in in time and and we can find examples of in uh, in in, in the, the human use of symbols.
0: Right now, you might be thinking about other existing snake symbols that are a little bit different. You might be thinking about the Ouroboros, right. where a snake is swallowing its own tail, but that's. Different than two snake heads facing each other, right? Uh, Though I mean, in the Ouroboros' defense, we usually don't see the tail because
1: it's in his mouth. Who's to say there wasn't a head on there? But yeah, the, the Ouroboros, the World Serpent, the
0: Midgard um, Serpent—it uh, it is yeah depicted as the snake consuming itself. On the other hand, one that is very similar but isn't quite the same thing does have snake heads facing each other. Would be the Caduceus. Mm-hmm. This is uh, this is of, like the the
1: staff with the snakes. Yeah, the coming staff the of side, Hermes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so uh, what we're talking about here is the, uh, the bena. And it's a a name that's derived from the Greek uh, to go both ways Mm -hmm. because the idea is that it's a snake that can move
0: forwards or backwards with ease. The one thing I've read is that snakes that just have one normal head and a normal tail can sometimes slither backwards. Like I I was reading a book about how uh, the author observed that coral snakes seem to be able to slither backwards just fine.
1: Right. And so, I mean, of course, in all of this, you're talking, we're dealing with something on one level, there's the, the symbolism level of it, right? Like what does the idea of a snake with two heads mean? How does it, what does it, um, it, how does it function in the human mind? Uh, but then also there is a certain degree of just like weird tales about what snakes look like. <laughs> um, so uh, according to Carol Rose, uh, the folklorist whose books I always come back to, uh, she, she, uh, she has a nice write-up about it in, in one of her monster books. And she points out that the Greek writer Lucan described it as a desert creature of North Africa. Um, and, um, and of course, as we'll, we'll, we'll see, Pliny the Elder, of course, also wrote about it. Okay. Uh, but uh, I also was reading from a 1996 article, "Stalking the Ambisbina" by Sidney J. Levy from the Journal of Consumer Research. What? <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, uh, but uh, okay. yeah, but uh, that mentions uh, that the, uh, the the this particular symbol quote was probably intended to express the horror and anguish associated with ambivalent situations.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I mean that. Um... It certainly goes with the kind of uh, classic archetype of of psychodynamics, right? The yeah. idea that uh, like this might not be uh, the most correct way of thinking about the mind now. But if you go back to, to Freudian thought, you know, mm-hmm. he he often seemed to emphasize that m- major problems in the mind, the psychoses and things were caused by states of ambivalence where you had, you know, conflicting desires or conflicting tendencies that couldn't be resolved. Yeah,
1: should I stay or should I go? I don't know. I'm of two snakes on the map. <laughs> Uh, so uh, this particular beast also shows up in a lot of uh, medieval beast areas with, uh, uh, as a winged creature with two legs added as well. Uh, sometimes it's said that it can roll like a hoop snake, a hoop snake being kind of a form of an Ouroboros that's less... Less concerned with what happens if a snake consumes itself. How does this? Uh, How does this play out in my mind? Versus what if a snake just gr- bit its own tail and then rolled like a wheel down a down a hill?
0: Now this is a mythical creature, yes, not yeah. a real
1: creature. Though there is a real wheel spider. Yeah, yeah. There are some real rolling creatures, but uh, but not quite like a hoop snake. Um, <laughs> Uh, Pliny, uh, here's what Pliny had to say about the um, the uh, Amphisbina in the natural history. Glad Pliny was on it. The Amphisbina has a twin head. That is one at the tail end as well, as though it were not enough for poison to be poured out of one mouth. <laughs> uh, because that's another aspect of it is is that the creature is supposed to be. Like any mythic serpent, it's uh, highly venomous. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the idea is it's just so venomous that one head's not enough. It needs two heads for all that venom. Uh, then likewise, there... There are accounts of how you can use its dried skin to, say, treat uh, rheumatism. Uh, uh, so there's, you know, there are all these different stories about it, and it reminds me a lot of the uh, of some of the things we were discussing about the basilisk.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Now Rose writes that while exaggerated, uh, she thinks it was likely based on some real venomous reptile in the Libyan desert, perhaps one that was uh, capable of slithering in either direction. Which, as uh, you said, that's not some real snakes can yeah, do. Not that impressive, but. If you didn't know that, it's kind of like if you don't know that horses can lay down and then you see one laying down sleeping and you're like, whoa, and then you start reporting. You're going to call up plenty immediately, right, and tell him. <laughs> or the other possibility is that it's a snake that seemed to raise its tail tail like a head when it was threatened. And we'll come back to, to that because uh, there are some potential um, um, examples of that for sure. Uh, then there are, you know, if we look outside of Western traditions, we also see double-headed serpents in the Aztec tradition. Yeah. Yeah, uh, with, a, with a, you know, there's a particularly interesting 15th or 16th century turquoise example that I'm sure everyone's seen photos of. There's a, there's a particularly uh, nice example of this in the British Museum, uh, this, tr- this turquoise uh, uh, serpent creature uh, with this uh, like, almost bear-like head on, on either end. And it's uncertain exactly what it's depicting. So, uh, you know, the, the idea may be that this is just representing that serpentine rebirth that we've talked about. So this is not so much a snake with two heads, mm-hmm. but that it's a snake emerging from itself, from its skin. It also mm-hmm. may be, well be related to uh, uh, Quetzalcoatl, which we, uh, we did an episode on talking about um, uh, the, the importance of the, 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 the plumed serpent in, uh, in Mesoamerican religion. And uh, and we should also point out that that particular god, like a, there, there's a snake god that is certainly far removed from anything Thulsa Doom represents. No. Thoroughly non-doomy, <laughs> and then uh, I also read that it's po- that it's possible that this is not like clearly uh, may- maybe an Aztec creation, but maybe it's a creation of the Mex the Mixtec people. Um, so you're go- you're ultimately going with with perhaps several different degrees of separation between uh, the people who originally um, dreamed up and created this work of art versus those certainly who now possess it.
0: So obviously, the next question is: Are there two-headed snakes in real life? Oh, yes. Yeah, the answer is clearly yes. Two-headed snakes of a certain kind, I will say, absolutely do exist and are pretty regularly captured or bred in captivity. It seems like maybe uh, once every couple of years, herpetologists come across one new and interesting case of this that blows up in the media. I think they probably get discovered more often. It's just only sometimes do they really catch fire on the internet. Mm But yes, there are pretty frequently cases of two-headed snakes known as dicephalic or polycephalic, meaning you know, two heads or many heads, from species like ladder snakes, copperheads, king snakes. Uh, I've read about in all those species and others. And these snakes generally have two heads, both growing from the neck end of the body. There is no species of snake that is regularly like this. Rather, this is – like this is not an adaptation or evolutionary change. It's a developmental anomaly. It occurs the same way that most other conjoined twins do. When an embryo in, in utero splits into twins, but it doesn't split all the way, leading to embryos that continue to develop while remaining attached in some way.
1: That's right. And if, if you want some more information on conjoined twins – uh, we we actually discussed this in our, our Halloween episode, one of our Halloween episodes last year, the Tales from the Crypt episode, uh, because of course there's a Tales from the Crypt episode. There's more than one actually oh, that, that, that involves treats con- that
0: in an insensitive yeah, manner. But yeah. so <laughs> so
1: we yeah we use that episode as a, as an excuse to like all right let's let's put aside the trash <laughs> because let's face it, Tales from the Crypt is ultimately a, a trashy show. Mm-hmm. But let's set all that aside and discuss like you know what the actual science is. Yeah. And so we went through all the various
0: forms uh, that occur. And so yeah, this decu- this occurs in all kinds of animals and in the cases I've read about what happens with snakes is you've got two heads that are side by side both extending from the neck at different um, sometimes there will be different amounts of like uh, length of the body that, that are separated mm-hmm. sometimes the heads are very close to each other sometimes they've got significant amounts of, of separate neck but they, they share connections usually to the top of the alimentary canal um, but the, the question would be here what about a snake with a head on both ends of the length of the body like in Thulsa Doom's standard for the Cult of Set it, could there be a Snake that's got a head for a tail.
1: Well, we already mentioned that Plenty the Elder um, discussed one, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we don't have Plenty with us any any longer, but we do have the Daily Mail, oh. <laughs> and uh, and so I was I was looking around, you know, for doing various searches uh, for two headed snakes, and I found an article from September twenty third, two thousand twelve. Uh, by Daily Mail reporter, <laughs> titled, They Both Seem to Control It. Family Finds Snake with Two Heads, One on Each End of Its Body. Okay, And so this all uh, seemed to have happened in South Carolina, and it was originally reported by Fox Carolina, presumably its Fantastic uh, Beasts Newsbeat uh-huh. uh, news desk, and it was, a, it was identified by the local high school's biology department as a rough earth snake. Uh, and you look at these pictures; they're not, you know, super clear. Um, but there was video. There it. was video at some point, but the video I couldn't find actual. Oh, I watched, the video. watched the video. I'll talk okay. about it in a second. All right, good because the yeah, the video footage I found had been removed, as as had the uh, like I was getting a four oh four on the original Fox uh, uh, reporting. But uh, the, the article was was pretty fun. My favorite line from it was quote. But while the snake pulls itself in opposite directions, Young, Savannah, and Preston are also pulled in different directions on what to name the snake.
0: (laughs) That's right. One of them wanted to name it Billy Bob. Yeah, and the other said Oreo. Right. Um, Uh, yeah, I was looking for more on this story to see to try to dig underneath like the, the the Daily Mail article, and I couldn't I couldn't get under it.
1: I I don't understand why there wasn't more follow up. I mean, I suspect it's because the snake died, and everyone was like, "Oh well, now I'm sad, and let's move on
0: with it." But yeah, or you because the original reporting might have been mistaken. That's the other. Yeah, we just don't we don't know ultimately. Yeah. Uh, so even though there's video, I mean, I did watch video, and it's a small snake, but they've got it in like a little igloo cooler. And it's slithering around, and it has some kind of. It wasn't super high definition, but it's got something on its tail that looks sort of head-shaped. Right. Uh, even though I saw some video, I'm still a little bit skeptical. I I wonder if what's being interpreted as a head on the tail end of the snake is not really a head. Yeah, I mean that's
1: that's a huge possibility.
0: Um. Uh, yeah. So, uh, just to, as, as backup for that, as that being a possibility, I, I was looking at a book from JHU Press 2018 called American Snakes by Sean P. Graham. Uh, and just as a side note, before we get to the thing that I, I went to this book for, as a side note, there's a part I found where the author is describing strange defense strategies that snakes employ. Uh, and this unrelated one is called Cloacal Popping. Oh, okay. So, sometimes, if you read about this. No, I mean if you if you'd ask me what cloacal popping was, I would assume it's like the hottest new dance uh, <laughs> number that I'm not familiar with. So sometimes when threatened, uh, some types of snakes will rapidly turn their cloaca inside out. And the cloaca is the the common hole at the rear of the body that's used for uh, urinary tract, digestive tract, and reproductive tract. So it's it's a common sort of hole back there that takes care of all the, the comings and goings at the backside of the body. So when these snakes get captured or handled or encounter some kind of Menace, They will sort of suddenly vigorously poop out part of their own rectum basically. It's not a rectum. It's cloaca, uh, which produces these popping or squishing sounds which are vaguely audible to us. Uh, It's not known what adaptive purpose, if any, this has. But there's your fact of the day, cloacal popping. Okay, bang. a little extra there. Okay. But also, the, the reason I was uh, reading about this is that I was looking for examples, and this is absolutely true, that some snake species have a defensive strategy that's known as automimicry which involves having a tail that looks like a second head. And examples of this include the rubber boa, which can use its tail Mm -hmm. as a decoy head if it's attacked, like if this snake is attacked. If you've seen pictures of the rubber boa, you might have seen it not just coiled, but sort of tied up in itself like a knot. It'll, you know, be a jumble. Mm -hmm. And while it's in this tangle, it will raise its tail up as if it were raising its head up and allow whatever is attacking it to attack its tail while it, you know, the real head is defended under the coiled body and perhaps searching for an escape route.
1: Right, and so in this it has a lot in common with various other animals where the idea is if a predator is going to attack you, draw their attack away from the um, the more sensitive parts of your anatomy. Yes. Draw them away from from like your brain or your torso. Get them towards the tail.
0: There are some creatures that even practice something that's known as autotomy. Oh, yes. Where yeah. they will like release their tail sort of as a distraction or a gift to the predator while the rest of them can escape. yeah.
1: I encountered uh, this uh, on a nature path over the weekend. Oh, really? I was walking uh, with my son, and lo and behold, there in the path is uh, we see a, a little lizard tail, mm-hmm. still moving, still flopping back and forth. Wow! No sign of the of its former owner, and so we were trying to decide: well, what happened here? Did uh, did the the, the lizard uh, you know a, attempt to prevent predation, and it didn't work, mm-hmm. uh, or did it work? And it's ever, all the parties have gone their separate ways. Uh, yeah, it's a fascinating um, uh, survival adaptation, uh, and a, there, I believe there is an episode of stuff to blow your mind uh, in the vault about it.
0: Uh, yeah, I think w- we did a two parter about tails a That's long time right. ago. Yes. Oh, well, um, we talked about the scorpion. Remember? The scorpion autotomy. Yeah, yeah, where its tail will come off, but then it, it it can't live much longer after that because it can't
1: poop. That's right. The tail, or uh, one of the the lost segments of the tail, contained the scorpion anus. Yeah, and therefore it yeah it can never poop again, uh, which I mean. In, as far as scorpion timelines go it's probably not that bad but that's the world of scorpions let's get back to the world says of you how do you
0: know how bad it is <laughs> I speak for the scorpions
1: well I mean never having to poop again I can just imagine yeah there's going to be there's going to be some huge downsides to that but then there are certain upsides <laughs> uh-huh. in, namely not having to poop again
0: okay so I want to be clear I, I want to try to be humble about what's going on with the with the supposed two-headed you know, head-on-the-tail snake here. I don't know that what's going on here is like a mistaken case of auto-mimicry. I I just will say that I'm not yet convinced that this is really a snake with a head on both ends. It seems a little hard for me to imagine exactly how that happens. Like, where is the cloaca, for one thing? Is it in the middle of the snake? Will the two heads go out from each side? Uh, all All the snakes where we have confirmed accounts that, like are really well documented that I could find are where the heads appear at the same end and so I'm yeah I'm I, I'm skeptical about this I am not yet convinced that this is for real
1: yeah I, I definitely would love to see more evidence um, be it just visual evidence of yeah. this particular snake or just more people saying oh yeah like I would love to hear from the, the actual uh, science teacher who presumably weighed in on this oh yeah um, if
0: you've seen this thing up close and you're listening now get in touch yeah
1: uh, and, and likewise i feel like the the town that this occurred in like this should be if this was real this snake should be like the the mascot for the city at this point right um so yeah talking pulling ab- itself into <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, so, but but anyway to, just to to get back to the the broader subject of uh, uh polycephaly or having two heads in uh, the the serpent world mm-hmm. um it's rare, but it does seem to occur – it seems to occur more in the snake world. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard to say for sure because such specimens, they tend to die fast in the wild.
0: Yeah, I've seen it speculated but not known for sure that it happens more often in snakes in captivity than it does in mm-hmm. wild snakes. Uh, but we th- that's not something that's known. It's just kind of a possibility.
1: I found a 2012 paper in the uh, Bulletin of the Chicago Herpetological Society titled – Two-Headed Snakes Make High-Maintenance Pets Uh by Van Wallach. And the author points out that there was a 1937 book uh, by an individual by the name of Cunningham on the subject of Two-Headed Snakes. And that book cataloged 950 cases in 169 species from 94 genera. And – the author here writes that currently, and this is 2012 currently, uh, there were 1,350 known cases, 191 species in 103 genera. And Van Wallach drove home that, that most of them end up just drowning in the egg or they're stillborn or they die shortly after birth. But if they uh, if, if they do survive, uh, one of the things is and this is the key to the title of the paper they're difficult to care for yeah they require extra assistance in in uh, you know in eating they need extra assistance even when they shed their skin uh, but they can survive in captivity in some cases.
0: Yeah, but they do encounter all kinds of problems to survival. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are good reasons you don't usually come across them alive in the wild. For one thing, with two heads, movement is a lot more difficult. You know, you've got two brains that can struggle for control of the body. Feeding can be more difficult as t- the two heads sometimes fight each other over access to the food. Uh, also, in some cases, after, of course, predation can be more difficult. And then in some cases, after feeding, I was reading that uh, if one of the snake's heads Smells like prey because it just ate. The other head may sometimes mistake that head for prey and try to attack it.
1: Ah, oh, and then we're t- we're potentially back in Ouroboros country at that point. Yeah,
0: and another thing that I thought was uh, kind of morbidly interesting in the in the Van Vallica piece that that you just mentioned, there is a risk. For example, if you've got a snake in uh, a two headed snake in a tank, a risk of the snake crawling into apertures or past obstacles because, of course, snakes very often like to hide inside holes and mm-hmm. enclosures. But if they have two heads bifurcated at the neck, you can run into a situation where one head is trying to pass by an obstacle or go into a hole that's essentially like like smashing the other head against that aperture or that obstacle oh. trying to get past it and could end up sort of peeling the other head off as it struggles to go forward.
1: That's not good. That's no. not good for anybody.
0: And uh, and the snakes are not, I mean, it, they, they don't have a lot of complex cognition. They can't usually think, oh, I should back up. You know, it just right. doesn't seem to occur to them.
1: Now, outside of the world of snakes, we should also note that real-life worm lizards are also known as uh, amphisbena. Um, but they, of course, only have one head. But their tail does truncate in a way that kind of resembles a head.
0: Uh, so, is it a form of automimicry? They think
1: I'm not entirely sure on that. If it actually functions as a as, as a mimic a, a mimicked head, or it's just one of these things where where we look at it and we say, "Oh, well, the end kind of looks like a head," mm-hmm. uh, and then they decided to bestow this name upon them.
0: Okay, I think we got to take a break, but we will be right back with more. All right, we're back. Okay, so we're thinking about Thulsa Doom in the Conan the Barbarian movie. One thing that the great Thulsa Doom uh, does, one trick he's got up his sleeve, is the snake arrow. Yes.
1: So this is one of my, my favorite uh, snake tricks from the film. Uh-huh. And there are, there's are at least – there are a couple of scenes where he employs this. One extremely dramatically where he'll, he'll draw a, a venomous snake mm-hmm. and then he'll, he'll stretch it out and he'll make it rigid like an arrow. And then he will take the um the rigid snake and he will put it in a bow and then he will fire it as an arrow uh, at one of his enemies right and so he like he takes a venomous snake and uses it as a venomous arrow.
0: yeah this is how he kills uh Conan's beloved the thief Valeria
1: yes so you if you're watching this uh, you you maybe you're, you're not asking questions, but I can't help but but wonder well where does this come from like they had to have been inspired by this, and even if they weren't inspired by a particular uh, detail from from history or mythology, uh, then clearly they weren't the ones to think of it first. Somebody else came up with this cool idea earlier. Uh-huh. Uh, and indeed, we do see uh, some form of this in the Hindu epic, uh, the Ramayana. Oh, okay. So there are mentions in uh, in the Ramayana of uh, serpent arrows or sharpavana, and then there's also the Nagapasha, a powerful snake-turned-arrow created created by Brahma. So one particular character, uh, we have the, the prince of Lanka. And this is the son of the tin-headed Ravana. Uh, Ravana being like the a demon. Yeah, he's like the demon king, principal antagonist. In, uh, in in this particular Hindu epic. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, the, uh, the the prince of Lanka is uh, named uh, Indrajit, and he employs a host of wondrous weapons, including serpent arrows. And I could have this wrong, but it seems like the descriptions vary as to whether these are snakes transformed into arrows or snakes fired as arrows. Again, I don't know, you know at what point you draw a line between these two things. Uh-huh. Also, I'm left wondering if they're venomous, my, like those of, that Thulsa Doom uses, uh, or do they coil around the victim? Oh, Now, this the later would seem to be the case based on some of the depictions I've seen of uh, Hanuman, uh, the, the, the monkey, uh, bound up by
0: such an arrow. Oh, okay. And so it'd almost be something more like a bolus or something, like it, uh, yeah. like it binds the enemy. You shoot it at them and it wraps them up. Yeah, that definitely seems
1: to be what's taking place in some of these illustrations I was looking at. Like you've been shot by a snake and now you're wrapped up in the snake. Now, of course, that's, again, we've gone from um, Hollywood film to uh, Hindu mythology. But let's bring it back to history. Okay. Uh, so what about just snake venom arrows? Not a snake, like we're not even going to explore, we're not going to even attempt to myth bust the idea that you could <laughs> that you could string a snake in a bow and arrow and fire it at somebody. That's not going to work.
0: I don't think that would work. Uh, I don't think you could get the snake to stay rigid for that. But I do think there have been cases where snakes have been used, uh, you know, intact in as bioweapons, you know, just sort of like seeding enemy territory with poisonous snakes.
1: Yeah, and certainly the idea of, using snake venom on an arrow, uh, this does seem to be a thing. I was looking uh, uh, at a paper titled Chemical and Biological Warfare in Antiquity from 2015 by Stanford's uh, Adrian Mayer.
0: Oh, yeah, of
1: uh, the geomythology episode. And this was in History of Toxicology and Environmental Health. All right. So um, some of the points that uh, Mayer makes – Uh, First of all, snake venom is digestible, so it's actually suitable for killing game. Oh, that's interesting. So like you can
0: eat it without it necessarily harming you.
1: Right. Yeah, or you don't have to worry about, yeah, I've I've felled a a deer and now I can potentially eat this deer. I haven't like, you know, ruined the deer. Mm -hmm. Another point uh, they make is that in warfare, uh, the venom can produce agonizing pain and or a never healing wound. Hmm. And then there are numerous venomous snakes in the Mediterranean uh, and, uh, and in Africa and Asia uh, that one could uh, turn to. And uh, the Greeks and Romans recorded numerous groups that were known to utilize their venom on arrows. Greek geographer Strabo, uh, she writes, uh, wrote of Ethiopian arrows dipped in, quote, the gall of serpents. And that the Soans of the Caucasus used arrow poisons so noxious that the smell alone was supposed to injure you. <laughs> And then uh, poisonous arrows, though perhaps not snake-based, uh, pop up in ancient China and South America as well. We'll come back to China in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, this is a big one. Snake venom crystallizes so it can cling and remain viable on a wooden bone and metal points. OK, so it wouldn't just be like dipping it in water
0: that would run off.
1: Right, yeah, and fly off as you uh, send the arrow sailing like it would have some sticking uh, uh, potential there. Um, also, the Greeks wrote of the deadly arrows of the Scythians coated in scythicon, which was said to be a combination of venom uh, and various other infectious agents like dung and human blood. Gross. Yeah, and this comes back to something we'll see in the the Chinese example of like people potentially just taking a bunch of things that were known or suspected to be nasty and infectious mm-hmm. and combining them together, yeah. and then using that as a coating for a weapon.
0: Yeah, so the, the uh, it might be that there were some vague concepts about bio warfare in the ancient world, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, b- before we had a germ theory of disease, say, or modern modern theories of toxicology and biology and chemistry. Uh, but still, they would have some vague ideas that there's a bunch of stuff you just group under poison, right. and that's things that will uh, will poison you in the direct chemical sense or cause infections. Exactly.
1: Uh, Mayer also uh, uh, points out that several venomous snakes uh, would have been at the disposal of the Scythians, uh, so the, the the Caucasus viper, the European adder, and the sand viper. Uh, Alexander the Great, according to his campaign historians, encountered snake venom weapons in the conquest of India, uh, specifically in uh, Harmatilia in modern-day Pakistan. Quote, any man who suffered even a slight wound felt immediately numb and experienced stabbing pains and convulsions. The victim's skin became pale and cold and he vomited bile. Soon, a black froth exuded from the wound. Purplish-green gangrene spread rapidly, followed by death. So... The idea was, well, perhaps this was cobra venom, but, uh, and that was long the theory, she points out. But that the, the counter to that is that cobra venom brings on a largely painless death due to respiratory uh, paralysis. So it's likely that it was another species of venomous snake that was utilized there. Now, on the the subject of uh, snake venom and Chinese weapons, uh, Christian and I did an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, uh, years ago titled Six Deadly Venoms, uh, where we we discussed various venoms from history and what their biological component was. Uh And we discussed uh, the Chinese poison goo and what it uh, might have actually been uh, with all of the folklore and superstition removed. Uh, The idea being that this was, goo was supposed to be a poison that was used by... um, by uh, um, um, uh, sort of rival um, uh, ethnic groups on the, the border. Hmm. And so, uh, but doesn't
0: uh, doesn't the the idea of goo also has connotations of like decay or something? It yeah.
1: Well, there there are kind of two different. There it's it's kind of becomes a complex topic because it's you can sort of view it as being a poison that was utilized by a foreign adversary, mm-hmm. or it's kind of like an aspect of their foreignness. It gets kind of complicated, and we we certainly give it more of a. A robust treatment in that episode, but one of the main sources we we turned to on that was the uh, the Miao and the poison interactions on China's southwest frontier by Norma Diamond, published in a 1988 edition of uh, Ethnology, and um, this was yeah this was said to be a poison used by the Miao people, one of Chinese uh, China's 55 ethnic groups, mostly in the mountains of southern China. And um, the Gu of the Tang Dynasty from around 618 CE onward took a couple of different forms. Uh, One was that it was just a quasi-magical poison created by sealing five different poisonous creatures together in a jar and keeping it in a dark place for a year. So you throw in a snake, a centipede, the toad, the scorpion, and the lizard.
0: Oh, no. And you
1: just let them duke it out in there until there's only one survivor, and then that survivor dies. And then when you open up the jar... Bam, you got some poison. It's like the doomsday of poison. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in, in terms of figuring out what an, the actual poison might be, like if there, if there's a real poison that was utilized by by this uh, group of people, you have to ask, well, what, what was it really? Where were they getting it? Were they, they weren't really creating a magical poison. But if we set aside all these supernatural ideas... Um, you know there are various theories that arise, but uh, one of them is that there were poisons uh, uh, that were used in hunting uh, by the Mao. There was the you know the, the sap of a particular tree, uh, but also sometimes they would mix this sap with snake venom, and it was widely traded in the area around Nanning. So this is a case where it doesn't sound like they definitely depended on snake venom, but snake venom might have been part of the cocktail. And then we, have, of course, have to wonder, like, to to what extent it was an active part of the cocktail. If it was really more about the 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 herbal ingredients mm-hmm. and the uh, you know, like the, the the tree sap that was utilized, as opposed to uh, the strength of the of the snake venom. This would be an interesting topic to come back to, because of course one's reminded of um, to, to to branch over into the amphibian world, mm-hmm. of the various poison dart frogs. Uh, and uh, And they are high toxicity. Mm-hmm. but of course, the 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 fact of the matter with the uh, with with these uh, species is that if you go and see them at like your local um, you know botanical garden or zoo, they're not actually going to be poisonous there because they don't have access to uh, the uh, the the vegetation that they consume to give them. Uh, that uh, that high degree of toxicity.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of uh, extremely poisonous or extremely venomous animals get their potency from something in their natural ecology, often from yeah. like a bacterium or something. It's from, from their uh, their microbiome or something else that they consume. But anyway, to bring it all
1: back to, to old Thulsa Doom, uh, venomous arrows, uh, definitely a thing. Uh, shooting actual snakes at people, uh, not a thing unless you are uh, a mythological figure.
0: You know, there are many animals uh, mentioned in the Bible that actually we don't know exactly how to translate them. Like modern scholars aren't sure what this name of an animal refers to. And one of them that's often been kind of confusing is this animal that's mentioned called the arrow snake. Uh, So that's how the name of it is translated. But I I never made the connection. I don't know – if that means that there's some suggestion that it's a snake that would have had venom used in arrows, I kind of doubt it, but that's a possibility.
1: I mean, you're also left with just the the undeniable comparison between an arrow, which is a, a very old bit of human technology, and the naturally occurring snake. Like the snake can be stretched out and it looks kind of like an arrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the comparison is unavoidable, the, both in understanding what an arrow is and understanding what a snake is. Yeah
0: they're both considered deadly.: Yes. Even though most snakes, not deadly. We don't want to contribute to snake panic on here. Snakes are great. Yeah. You want snakes living around your house. You want them. And in fact, I would love to come back
1: to I've already sort of planted the seeds. We'll see. But I'm, I'm thinking about having a, a guest come back on the show and discuss uh, the importance of snakes uh, in our, our local
0: habitats. I am so on board for that. I want to do whatever we can to fight reptile hate.
1: All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, uh, we will discuss one more aspect of Thulsa Doom's cult and how it compares to the natural world.
0: All right. We're back. So, uh, clearly the best thing about the Conan the Barbarian movie, as we've discussed before, is James Earl Jones in the role of Thulsa Doom. But but he does one thing in the movie that we haven't gotten to yet. I don't think we've mentioned, which is that he can turn himself into a giant snake.
1: Oh, yes. He does this. He tr- changes into a giant snake in order to um, escape the vengeance of Conan.
0: Yeah, There's also a part where Conan just uh, goes into a tower and kills a giant snake for no good reason, except I guess he wanted to steal and— uh, the snake woke up while he was stealing. Well,
1: the snake was a pet uh, uh-huh. that uh, was
0: it. Was, was it Rexor had raised? Which one was it? I one think of, it was Thorgrim. The Thorngrim one played had by Spinola Thorson. Yes, yes. Secundus from Abraxas, Guardian of the Universe. He, yes,
1: him. So he had raised this snake from a child. It lived in the temple. It was the pet of Thulsa Doom. Uh-huh. So, but it was also like the security device. And Conan and his
0: compatriots had broken into the temple to steal things. Is just one of the many examples in the movie where you see Conan, like, uh, enacting brutal violence on something where you kind of take the other thing's side. It's like, ah, I'd kind of like to see the snake win here. <laughs> you know, Conan's just chopping its head off. I'm trying to steal a gem. Won't you leave me alone? <laughs> Yeah, and certainly
1: Conan does uh, succeed in massacring this giant, beautiful reptile. Yeah. Um,
0: but also James Earl Jones can turn himself into a massive giant snake, which appear- is not the same as the earlier snake. There no, are just no. multiple giant snakes in the movie.
1: Yeah, I mean that's one of the, the – authentically, this is one of the aspects of like old pulp wizards is mm-hmm. you don't know what they're capable of. They can pull off any, any number of um, – of dark sorceries. Uh, They have a pet snake. They can turn into a pet snake. They can make snakes and arrows. There's no limit. But it leads to the, the, the unavoidable question. Like how big do terrestrial snakes get? How big have they gotten in the past? Is there anything in the world today as big as the snake we see in the Temple of Set? And if not, was there ever anything that big? So let's start with the present and work our way back. Okay. So this is a topic i looked into previously. Uh, actually, I ended up writing an article about this for uh, How Stuff Works a few years back. And um, when we look, when we discuss the biggest snakes, uh, there are a couple of species that we turn to, and in both cases, we turn to the females because they uh, they, they run larger. So we have the Asian reticulated python, or Python reticulatus. And these tend to be the longest snakes mm-hmm. that you find in the natural world. The most uh, uh, reputable record lengths are around 25 feet or 7.6 meters. Uh, field measurements in a 1999 survey averaged uh, a little under 12 feet or 3.2 meters in the jungles of southern Sumatra, maxing out at just shy of 20 feet or 6.1 meters. Um, and uh, then in South America we have the green anaconda.
0: Ah, okay. This would be of the movie Anaconda. Yes, fame. To bring uh, in another another uh, giant snake movie. Another great cheesy uh, cheesy action movie. Yeah, the one that it ends up eating uh, uh, John Voight for a while. For a while. <laughs> speaking of films I loved when I was younger and mm-hmm. recently went back and revisited Anaconda is another one yeah yeah I, I love that when I was a kid I, I went back and watched it within the past couple of years and that is a great cheesy creature flick it is worth a watch
1: And you know is the creature in question uh, the giant snake or John Voight because he's the oh, villain oh, of both. the piece yes. uh,
0: John Voight in it is, it is also speaking of like like actors who go whole hog <laughs> who just like go over the horizon with their villain performances uh John Voight's doing it in this movie. He's got this accent that who knows what it's supposed to sound like. He's he's playing like a South American Dracula who hunts (laughs) snakes. It's just amazing. (laughs) I need to
1: see that one again. So, yes, if you go to South America, you'll get the green anaconda. And these tend to be the more massive of the two species here. Uh, larger females typical re- typically reach lengths of 9 feet, 2.7 meters, and they weigh upward of 200 pounds or 90.7 kilograms. Up to 29 and 32-foot 30 to- lengths have been considered possible by experts. So this tends to be when you get into arguments about what's the largest living snake, uh, you know, you're going to have people that are on team reticulated python. You're going to have people that are on team green anaconda. Mm-hmm. If you go to a zoo— Uh, or a reptile house, and you happen to see uh, 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 specimens of both species, uh, you, you could probably make a case for either depending on how large the individual is. And also in either case... There are also wilder stories and even some photo evidence of skins uh, that suggest larger creatures. So it might be just a reported sighting or someone said, look, here's a picture of the skin we got from this snake. Uh, The the problem in these situations is that snake skins, once they've been removed from the snake, may be stretched out a bit. So not only you can stretch your story and you can stretch your physical evidence and it becomes um, harder to lean on it. Hmm um but to just give an idea about the uh, about the, some of the crazier sightings uh in 1923 uh, Fritz W. Uptograph reported seeing a 50 to 60 foot or 15 to 18 meter green anaconda hmm. and that's one that I, I've seen the experts do they really kind of roll their eyes at that one. But that's – so the, both of these are cases where those giant snakes, those are impressive creatures. If you get to see them uh, at any kind of a reptile house or certainly if you ever get to see one in the wild, like that's that's impressive. But they're not as big as the, as the giant snake we see in Conan the Barbarian. To find something that big, we have to go back in time. Uh, you know, not to the Hyborian age. Yeah, yeah, we have to go well past the time of high adventure. <laughs> uh, we have to go back sixty million years. Uh, specifically, we have to go to uh, what is now known as, as the country of Colombia, and we have to go to the Sarajon rainforest, and that is where we will find the Titanoboa.
0: Titanoboa.
1: Yes. Uh, and this is a this is a creature that's received a lot of press. Mm-hmm. Uh, there've been a lot of there's some cool artwork that was created with uh, uh, to go along with the studies about the Titanoboa and the fossil evidence that uh, that informs us about its size. But uh, this was an impressive serpent. This was this was kind of a, a very you know, like a hot box jungle environment, mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons that uh, this serpent could reach such a size 60 million years ago. Uh, the temperatures there. Uh, probably an average yearly temperature of 86 to 93 degrees Fahrenheit, or 30 to 34 degrees Celsius, far hotter than modern tropical rainforest temperatures. And and the size of this creature was impressive. University of Florida paleontologists estimate its ta- tip to tail length at a whopping 42 feet, or 13 meters, and it would have had a crushing it would have had a crushing weight uh, of more than a ton. Wow. So this uh, particular species, Titanoboa, would definitely uh, be able to stand in for that giant snake we see in Conan the Barbarian.
0: And don't you lay a finger on it, Conan, Don't you hurt this snake? It is a wholly blameless creature. <laughs> it is uh, it, you know, whatever your feelings
1: are about Thulsa Doom and his awful death cult, um, which granted, it is an awful death cult.
0: Uh, you know, we can't blame that on the snake. Why don't they look? <laughs> I have a question about snake size and uh, and our supposed instincts. Now we talked a little bit in the last episode about the idea that there's there's an ongoing debate about the extent to which our uh, the common fear of certain types of animal forms, particularly things like snakes and spiders, is is hardwired into human brains. It's the thing that you're born being afraid of without even having having been told it exists right. Or is it a culturally conditioned fear, you know, something we learn about from fiction and from people around us that we're supposed to be afraid of? And there's obviously going to be some cultural conditioning. But the question is, is there something that's there before that? Is, is it there in the brain before the culture gets to you? And there's some evidence, I think, that you know, even like babies looking at pictures of snakes get pupil dilation when, when they see an image of a snake. But my question would be, does that scale – like, does the – I mean, like, once you get to a snake of this size, it's so big, it's not even really recognizable as a snake in the way you would normally perceive snake threats. It becomes a dragon. It becomes some kind of completely other thing. I mean, the kind of snakes that would be any sort of normal threat that you might have biological conditioning to avoid would be relatively small snakes. Their, their threat would be in their venom, not in their size.
1: Right. Right. But you're, you're saying, like, if we were to encounter a Titanoboa in the wild, would it even register as a snake to us? Hmm. Well, I think on, on one level, you know, yeah, it wouldn't have to. Like, I, I think there is something, there's that kind of magical moment, like a darkly magical moment whenever you perceive a, a predator in the wild. Like, like not, not, not just any predator, but a creature that, that could conceivably prey upon a human. Um, at least a, you know, weakened human, uh, it seems to, it feels like it sets off different alarms in your brain, you know? Yeah. Like when you lock eyes with that lion, when you're, I've certainly been in, in this situation, when you're the first person to the zoo uh, and and the, the lion sees you mm-hmm. and you lock eyes with the lion or perhaps the lion looks at the small child that's traveling with you uh-huh. um, and you realize, oh, I would... You know, if if not for this glass wall, if not for uh, uh, for the the artificial aspects of this encounter, um, I would be the one fleeing now. I would be the one, you know, at least backing away, if not running in terror. Uh, so I I feel like that would certainly kick in. Yeah, if you were to encounter the Titanoboa.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm not saying people wouldn't be afraid of it w- with good reason. I would. I think they wouldn't say
1: "eek" is the is the difference. Yeah, they wouldn't say "eek," a snake. They would say, "Oh my God."
0: A snake <laughs> <laughs> but i guess humans in the titanobo never existed at the same time right. so there'd be no reason to have this kind of conditioned fear
1: yeah i mean the closest would be you know any degree of conditioning that might come from being around um you know green anacondas and reticulated pythons but that's a different that's a different level of it's totally not the same thing as the danger of a venomous snake where i could conceivably
0: accidentally um Uh, wind up bitten by the snake yeah Um, but and i think also a lot of the danger there with the venomous snakes that it it, it has been hypothesized that if we have some kind of hardwired instinctual reaction to snakes it was mainly about children right right that there would be small children would be vulnerable to them right
1: and of course that's going to be the case with uh, a lot of predators in general Mm -hmm. you know the the wild cat that is not a danger to an adult human could be a danger to a small child. I mean, definitely that's the case, even with modern day uh, uh, crocodilians. Mm-hmm. Oh, but
0: they're also they're definitely crocodilians that are a danger to adults.
1: Yes, yes, but uh, but but even you know more so so to a dimin- diminutive human.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd just like to wrap up today by saying I'm on Thulsa Doom's side. I would join <sighs> his cult. I would take his side against Conan and his evil friends. And uh, yeah. There's where my loyalty is. Okay,
1: even even though, just to be clear, they do practice cannibalism. That's yeah. firmly established.
0: Uh, you know, it big was a little cannibal cannibalism stews. here and there. <laughs> Get All to right. hang out with
1: Sven only Thorson. You know. Yeah, yeah. There does seem to be a certain amount of just hanging out and chilling uh, in the temple set. Flesh is stronger than steel. That's right. That's what he tells us. All right. So there you have it. Um, Again, we set out to do one episode. We had to break this one into two, but I think it was worthwhile because we got to explore a few things that I I don't think we would have necessarily ever covered on the show had we not been prompted by Thulsa Doom's teachings. Uh, Likewise, we got to highlight some areas we might come back to in the future
0: uh, related to uh, the study of, of serpents. Yeah, totally. I'm not done. I, it, this is not. This is not just another snake cult. We will be the snake religion by the time we're finished. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, in,
1: uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you want to check out those past movie episodes that we've done, Highlander 2, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Dark Crystal, you can find them all at stufftoblowyourmind.com. And if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Um, you know, wherever you get this podcast, give us some stars, leave a nice comment. That helps us out. Also, if you haven't checked out Invention, Check out Invention. It's the other podcast that we do. It is an invention by invention exploration of human techno history. Uh, we've been looking at a lot at photography and motion picture. So uh, you know, if you perhaps you check this uh, episode out because you're into films and you're like, what kind of uh, science are they going to squeeze out of this uh, this puppy? Well, uh, then go check out Invention and, and learn about where the, the technology of films came from.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.